0: Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. To be sure, factor investing has been a thing in equities for some time now. With vast pools of capital managed by firms that employ a systematic approach to harvesting style factors like growth, value, and momentum. In 2013, Asnes, Moskowitz, and Peterson authored Value and Momentum Everywhere for the Journal of Finance, finding common factors in return attribution across eight markets. Still, a decade later, fixed income factor investing is a nascent strategy. Enter Karish McCall, head of systematic fixed income strategies at Fidelity. With a master's in financial engineering from Cornell, she hit Wall Street in 2008, landing on a fixed income desk the day of the Lehman bankruptcy. The ensuing financial crisis would provide valuable lessons on the limitations of theoretical models and the pitfalls that potentially arise from backtests. tests. Our discussion shifts to fixed income factor investing. Karishma provides an overview of common factors, including value, momentum, and quality. The latter, she argues, can play an important stabilizing role during risk-off periods. She makes the point that each of these factors delivers incremental risk-adjusted return in isolation, but when put together, add further value due to favorably low correlation among them. We discuss implementation, a process that can be complicated in fixed income where attention must be paid to trading frictions. Lastly, we touch on the risk of potential return dampening due to crowding. Here, Karishma acknowledges this as a risk factor to monitor, but notes that the capital in these strategies is still small, and there should be plenty of room for growth. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with Karishma McCall My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Karishma McCall. She is the head of Systematic Fixed Income Strategies at Fidelity Asset Management. Karishma, it's a pleasure to have you on the Alpha Exchange today.
1: Yep, same here. I'm very happy to
0: be here. Yeah, I'm excited we got introduced. Uh, You've got a really interesting background and are doing some really interesting work on the systematic side within fixed income. So there'll be a lot for us to explore. Let's get our conversation underway, learn a little bit more about you, about your career path, how you ventured into this world of finance. Tell us just a little bit about your career history.
1: Yeah, would love to. So I did my bachelor's in electronics engineering back in India. I enjoyed it, but I didn't necessarily love it. And so I was figuring out what I was going to do after graduation. And while I was ready to join a job in the same area, I came across a program around financial engineering. And that really intrigued me because it felt like such a great application of all the love that I have for math. So I looked at that, I applied for it. And so right after my bachelor's, I did my master's in financial engineering at Cornell. And so I enjoyed that course because again, it had these practical applications, problem solving aspects that I I really loved. And then I, Did my internship and my first internship was on the sell side at an EM fixed income desk. And so that was my first foray into fixed income. Absolutely loved being on the floor. I loved the quantitative nature of the role. I loved that it was fast-paced. And most importantly, it kind of showed me like this whole modeling bit that we learned in school that applied to the markets and recognizing the limitations of how much you can model. That was a great experience. And I knew this is where I want to be. So then I started my career in 2008 on the sell side at the fixed income desk at a very interesting time. The Monday that I started was when Lehman had gone bust over the weekend. So it was a very eventful start to my career. I learned a lot. The first two years were rotations across various desks I worked a lot on interest rate derivatives, and that's where I spent a bulk of my time. I was building pricing models for swaptions, swaps, caps, floors. And while I was there, I got my CFA as well. After a couple of years on the sell side, I moved to the buy side as a portfolio manager on the corporate credit desk. And this was uh, in the systematic pod. And there I was essentially managing systematic portfolios that load on various factors or signals for investment-grade corporates. I did that for a couple of years, and it was such a great experience to see from pricing fixed-income instruments to now actually investing in them using a mosaic of insights and quantitative insights besides modeling. So same larger area, but a different role And again, taking that modeling bit and combining it with what's happening in the market, limitations of how much you can model, and learning how to be tactical. So that, again, was a great experience. While I was a portfolio manager, I forayed into research. I loved doing research on my own. And so very naturally, after a couple of years, I moved into a full-time research role, building systematic strategies for fixed income assets, corporate credit, asset allocation within fixed income, some work in munis, a bunch of work in ESG. So it gave me a breadth of experience while I was in that research role. And so after that, last year or early last year, I came across this role at Fidelity, which was a mandate of building a team, building a business from the ground up, and essentially developing these systematic strategies and then running them at Fidelity within their quant division, which is called Quantitative Research and Investments. It sounded like a great opportunity, a little bit challenging, but very exciting. But a place like Fidelity, where you know they have decades of experience running AUM in the fixed space, a very robust data infrastructure, trading workflows, and intellectual capital. So it just felt like a very... Safe place where I could leverage a lot of my experience both on the research side, portfolio management side, product development, and build something from scratch. And so I joined Fidelity last year in May, really, really enjoyed it so far. I'm excited for everything that we are doing here. So yeah, that's my journey so far. As I look back at it, and you know, I was thinking about, you know, the exposure that I've had in different roles, it really strikes me that. The engagement in breadth early in my career, the role that that has played for me to be here, you know, coming out of school, I was very open to stretch projects. And then when I think about exposure across breadth, I think about asset classes. So within fixed income, fixed income is just asset classes within an asset class. So exposure to breadth, both in terms of asset classes and roles, whether it's portfolio management, Model, a quant analyst, or alpha research—all of that really exposes you to different skill sets, different ways of thinking. Really, a full circle of investment. So, thinking about how to be effective in any role, I feel like exposure to breadth has really helped me. And then you get that breadth, understand what you like, understand your where you're good at, where you're not, and then doing specialization in there has been key.
0: Well, this is a really interesting background, and I would call it one of the very direct backgrounds. You are, Matthew, and saw reasonably quickly that there was some application towards the business of pricing, complex securities, and the business of portfolio management. Some people come at it on a pretty roundabout basis. One of the things you said is that first day of yours was the day after Lehman Weekend and the Lehman Bankruptcy. And Karishma, it just happens to be today, 15 years ago.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah,
0: it's uh, September 15th of of 08. And so I do a lot of reflection on past episodes of crisis. I feel like there's just so much to learn when markets go haywire. And I was just hoping you could reflect on maybe your time at Cornell in that master's of financial engineering program, a lot of exposure to the complexities of models, but models that live and breathe in a pretty neat and tidy universe of oftentimes closed-form solutions and so forth. And then you hit this desk, and it's just chaos for the first three to six months that you're there. The VIX is in the gets to 80, credit spreads are just as wide as you could ever imagine. Dislocations are everywhere you look, the government Is got its work cut out for us. The Fed is very active. Take us through maybe just the reflecting on that neat and tidy universe of the engineering, financial engineering program versus the chaos that ensued in the months that you began in September of 08.
1: Yeah. So, as you mentioned, all of that kind of flashes in front of me. So, you know, doing my masters, I love the idea of this that everything is in that neat and tidy universe. So working on these models, it felt like there's always an answer to a problem. And starting, and even during an internship, there was a little bit of exposure to limitations of the model. But of course, starting in 2008 just puts everything in perspective. We had the credit desk right next to us and 90% 90% of that desk was not there the next day. So it was it was just a very chaotic time to be in. But as I look back and I think about the big lessons that came out of it, a big takeaway for me that had direct implications for years after was like looking at back tests and looking at these model assumptions. And even though they might feel very benign, the last decade plus has been such a different regime than before, along with you know some of the unique things that have happened, whether it's these low rates we've had forever, the negative rates that we saw right after, where we had to go back and revisit and change all of our pricing models, because they assumed log normal distributions. So we had to change swaption pricing, wall pricing, and react relatively quickly. So rather than created a model, and this is the price that the model is saying, it's more about this is the world we are in now, and now let's adapt the model to the world. The other big thing, as I said, is the whole back testing thing. We love back tests, and we love to say the strategy's got this IR and it'll perform in these regimes. But these regimes change, and every risk-off regime is very different and so just doing simplistic regimes from a lens of an equity market or an oil market, but every one of these regimes has a lot of different factors that play into it. And uh, particularly with Fed coming into the picture, that was something that was completely new. So I'd say the two big takeaways and things that have had implications for me and the way I do my work and investing now are, one, don't rely on back tests or don't just rely on back tests. Every regime is different and you have to be tactical, even though you might have a model and a very systematic process, there might be periods where from a risk management point of view, you have to step out of that model and step out of the priors that you may have and fall back on economic intuition, sensibility and just plain common sense. And then the other big aspect is pricing models, especially like OTC instruments. What we saw on the securitized space back then, that was just mind-blowing and really puts that in perspective, both from a pricing point of view and then risk management.
0: Yeah, there's so much to be said for the manner in which these dislocations can sometimes just be so shocking relative to what... A model might suggest is the justified price. You know, markets can really get offsides sometimes and seems to happen with certainly more frequency than, again, that tidy universe would suggest. So that's really interesting. And so it gives us a good starting point to start to dive into some of your work on this burgeoning area of systematic fixed income. You know, certainly factor land in equities has been a thing for quite some time. It's a, pretty significant component of AUM in a lot of parts of the equity market. These factors are well-worn. There are terms like the factor zoo, even where uh, folks suggest that there's way too many factors. But this world of fixed income factors, it's just not nearly as well-known. And so this is why I think this conversation is going to be so valuable to our listeners. So maybe you could set the table for us a little bit and just give us a, a broad description when we talk about style factors in fixed income i was hoping you could just lay out just from the broadest maybe 30,000 feet of what does that mean if you can maybe just draw upon a couple of the common factors how they have tended to play a role in having explanatory power for the risk return trade off just give us a big picture of when people talk about style factors in fixed income
1: Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, the way we think about factors are, at the end of the day, they are characteristics that help explain risk and return. And they help put in that lens beyond just alpha and beta, right? And so macro factors explain risk and return across asset classes. So we think of them within the fixed income space as rate risk, credit risk, inflation risk. And then on the style factor side, the way we think about it is still similar to equities, I'd say. So in the equity land, factor investing or just the idea of factors has been around there forever, going back to CAPM in 1960s. But the five factors that we know are well known in equities are size, value, momentum, quality, low wall. Now, when you think about that in fixed income, particularly credit, They are largely the same, but there are are some differences as well, and that's a function of the asset class, the risk return profile that fixed income has, where downside is pretty unlimited, but your upside is capped. And that does have some implications to what these factors are. So let's just think about broadly size factor in equities. Does that exist in fixed income? So not really, not in credit, because size at the end of the day, given your, during your market value is essentially the size of debt, ends up being just a liquidity risk. So more than size, there's a lot of overlap with liquidity. So I'd say there is definitely a liquidity factor. It's hard to make it standard, but that exists. The other factor, so think about the major factors, the other factor is value. So within credit or rates, the idea is a security is rich or cheap to its intrinsic value. So I think of that within credit as, okay, so you've got a spread over treasury and generally that's the measure of your credit risk. But if you have a model that can measure the intrinsic value, so essentially what should that spread be, whether using structural models or statistical models on the back of different characteristics like probability of default, rating, maturity, after accounting for all of that, and you have an intrinsic value, that's essentially the value factor in credit. And and there is a lot of literature that proves the same thing, a lot more recent than what we see in equities, but value as a factor is well known and we've seen its performance over the last 20, 30 years. The other factor is around momentum. So again, it's a factor that already works in equities This one is a very interesting factor in fixed income because, as I mentioned, fixed income in itself is unique in terms of its risk-return profile, and so it's got this capped upside, which just means that when you think about these low-risk names, you know Microsoft and Johnson and Johnson, to expect momentum to exist in those names is a little bit hard because your upside is capped. So what we do notice in fixed income is that as you go down the risk spectrum, and so as you go from investment grade bonds to high yield bonds, and then closer to equities, and as you know, high yield is closer to equities in terms of its behavior than investment grade, we do see momentum. So high yield bonds, particularly in the tail, have significant performance in the momentum factor. But as you go up the credit spectrum with these really tight names, what we see is a reversal, and so that is a function of the fixed income asset class itself. And so within credit, there is this combination of momentum reversal that happens, and that depends a little bit on the market regime, but mainly depends on where in the credit spectrum. And you can divide it by spread quintiles, or you can divide it by probability of default quintiles that a bond lies. That's a little bit interesting, a little bit different from equities. The other factor that works in equities and works in fixed income is quality. So basically, companies that generate superior profits possess strong balance sheets, stable cash flows, they work out in equities over a full business cycle, and that's what we see in fixed income as well. In fact, you know, they provide that factor provides quite a bit of downside protection during very volatile times. And then finally, the last factor is around low wall, and you could call it defensive low wall, where similar to what we see in equity is over the long term, low wall, where bonds or issuers that have lower volatility produce better adjusted returns over higher wall bonds or issuers. And we see that in fixed income as well. Now, of course, to express that factor and to express that insight, You need leverage, which can be prohibitive when it comes to fixed income, but it does work as a factor theoretically.
0: Let's start to break down some of these factors and start with value. And I have a couple of questions on this. So when we think about value, you've made the point that you've got some market option adjusted spread. That's the price. That's the risk premium that's extractable from the market. And then you're effectively mapping that versus, I guess I would call it some fair default probability and looking for differentials there. So, two questions. One, as you think about the drivers of the fair default probability, I was hoping you could just talk a little bit more about that. And then, you know, a lot of these factors beg for explanation. I'm from the University of Chicago's business school. So, I studied under Gene Fama and of course, there was always the debate around things like value and momentum. Are they market efficiency? Are they risk premium? Guys like Richard Thaler are going to say there's a behavioral aspect. So when you think about extracting value from the value factor, what do you think's going on there in terms of the the explanation why the market may be leaving something on the table?
1: So a couple of things. Uh, first, going back to this intrinsic value and what are the drivers of, I think you were like, what would the drivers of the probability of default or this credit risk? I'd say the two big drivers there are leverage and asset wall. And uh, generally, we use Merton-based models to capture the probability of default. So essentially like a closed-form solution and then some sort of a measure to convert a distance to default or standard deviations from when a issuer is going to default to an actual probability of default. And then the two big inputs there are, so you'll see higher levered firms, higher asset wall firms would have a higher probability of default. Yeah, there are a couple of things and it's all the three factors that you mentioned, right? Like there is a higher risk element to it and uh, you're getting rewarded to take that. And this particularly expresses itself during big drawdowns. If you look at the value factor, it'll perform well for the most part, but where you have big shocks to the market, you have defaults occurring, which have not been captured in pricing. You would see this factor perform pretty poorly. So there, there is that. There is, of course, the mispricing bit, which helps you leverage this. A lot of the investors, particularly in the fixed income space, are like still large investors, like pension clients and insurance clients, which are anchored to perhaps ratings. So as opposed to using models, which are more sophisticated, taking into account leverage or asset like any of this, they they may be looking at more, okay, our mandates are either IG or mandates, just A plus ratings. So there's a little bit of anchoring to those ratings. And then within those rating buckets, there is Reaching for yield, reaching for spread. So, because of that, there are these mispricings that happen in the market that only get where you can see them is during these big drawdowns or big market
0: volatility
1: events. So, there is that for sure. And so, for value, I'd say those are the two big reasons that are driving it.
0: And you talk a lot about quality, some of its defensive characteristics as well. It'd be great to just learn a little bit more about that factor and maybe what makes it unique in credit, perhaps distinguishing it versus how it manifests itself in the equity world. Talk to us a little bit more about the quality factor and specifically how it tends to provide some buffer during whether it's risk-off periods or periods of just higher spreads and and higher volatility. Yeah,
1: definitely. So quality is unique and pretty special to credit because it's very hard to generate consistent performance across business cycles without a quality factor in your strategy. And that's a function of just fixed income having this asymmetrical return profile. So where your upside is limited, but firms can default and your security can go from 100 part to zero when that happens. So, when we look at the quality factor, what's interesting is, and whether you do a quintile analysis or a decile analysis, is that do you get rewarded for higher quality? Not necessarily, and that is a function of the profile of these assets. But when you look at the last tail of this quality, where you have very low quality names, they really underperform over the long term. So, if you think if I want to implement a factor which is loading on higher profitability firms, stable cash flows, just good companies, that may not necessarily have a great performance in the traditional long, short quintile factor portfolio sense. Uh, You'll, of course, see some downside protection. But if you think about is there a way to apply that factor? such that I can capture that downside protection without giving up the upside. So you can use innovative ways to perhaps only look at the tail of the quality, like you know, not really load on higher quality names, but get beta exposure with a quality tilt. And that would perform really well over the long term. That's a little bit different than equities where equities, quality as such, That does have downside protection as well, but generally should perform over different regimes in fixed income quality has this risk of performance and has this tail performance and could be a drag if you just loaded on it on its own.
0: The interaction between these factors is just a critical part of the portfolio construction process and, of course, the ultimate output from a Vol on, on the portfolio basis, and uh, we talked a little bit about the the GFC. A year before that is the sort of setup to the GFC. There's a bunch of things that start to go wrong, but August 07 is this quant quake. And I'm just remembering this pretty famous paper by Cliff Asnes of AQR before that, and I think it was called the Interaction of Value and Momentum Strategies. The big picture was that each of these has got value independently, but put together, it's even more valuable on a portfolio basis because they've got this kind of negative interaction uh, from a correlation standpoint. Of course, the quant quake was one in which these things sold off jointly because it was just a giant unwind. And so with that, I'd love for you to just talk to us about how you think about the setup of these factors, not just in isolation, but How should we think about them working together? You've mentioned five prominent factors, size, value, momentum, quality, and low vol. Tell us about the overlap between them or where you can really derive a portfolio diversification benefit.
1: Yep, definitely. So think about these factors. Size, I'd like in credit, I've just excluded just because it's essentially loading on illiquidity risk. And that's not really even though you might see some returns there, you can't really tap into them. So then then you're thinking about momentum, value, quality, and low wall. Low wall is interesting. It does, provide, it does provide downside protection as well, but you need leverage to implement it. It's also not performed very well recently and without going too deep into it, it's a function of the uh, Fed action that we've seen where, now, the wall for really high risk names traditionally is a lot lower because of a bid for these bonds. So that's low wall. And then you're left with value momentum quality. While the momentum quality, when you look at them, momentum is the one that has the highest turnover. So a momentum strategy on its own is going to have a lot of turnover, a lot of transaction costs, and hard to implement. When you look at its correlation and overlap with value and quality, momentum is unique because it lends itself to what regime you're in. So if it's a risk-on kind of a regime, momentum will have a positive correlation to value. If it's risk-off, it's going to be positive with quality. So it kind of is lends itself depending on the regime. So when you do like an average correlation, it might feel like flat, but it actually is different between different regimes. And then value and quality are negatively correlated. As you see that they would be loading on different insights, quality going for these really high quality downside protection kind of firms, and value leaning into carry, but risk-adjusted carry, if you may. And so value and quality really combine very well in fixed income. And in fact, I'd say instead of a single factor fund, what we would ideally like in fixed income is combination of value and quality. And that would give you a combination of a signal or a portfolio that performs really well in risk-on regimes, but also has a downside capture when 08 happens, 2015 happens, or more recently, 2020 happens. So I'd say value and quality definitely together. Now, you could add momentum to it, but I feel like you need to have a little bit more nuanced construction there to account for turnover, to account for transaction costs, and then being nuanced about how you would work with it in different regimes.
0: You mentioned 2020, and uh, certainly the aftermath of it, of course, was a, a world crisis, a market crisis, and then this incredible sort of mini regime of just rates that you never thought could be that low. And then- On the risk pricing side, you had in equities, and this is, I would love for you to reflect on this in in your world valuation spreads in equities had just never approached something like this. I think, even challenging the tech bubble, the most expensive stocks, that spread from a valuation standpoint versus the cheapest stocks had just never been so wide in that kind of 2021 period post COVID. So, it threw a lot of these value strategies really tested them. And it had folks having to really examine their models. You said, you know, just not taking the back tests literally and having to really re-underwrite them. I was hoping you could reflect on that, just that period in the fixed income world, valuation spreads there. Was it similar to what was experienced in the equity world? What were some of the things you can tell us about that period?
1: Yeah, it was a very interesting period again, like March, 2020 and everything that happened after that. It would have been very, very hard to predict. So March 2020, you would expect, knowing what value and quality would do, they did exactly like that. So value underperformed significantly, and then quality did really well that month. After that, it was just spread compression. And so what we saw was starting from then to like all of 2021, value did really well, and quality kind of lagged. And... 2022 was, of course, the big year where we saw fixed income really sell off and something that we hadn't seen in the decade prior. And that was... So from a factor perspective, first, as you would expect, value has done pretty poorly since then, and quality is outperformed in 2022. But what also happened during that period is like these correlations breaking down between rates and credit. So a lot of the models that had uh, macro overlays with the assumption that that correlation is negative really struggled in 2022. Same as with factor correlations where we saw, particularly these momentum reversal correlations being flat that they we saw a lot of turnover come out on the back of that, so the two big takeaways from that were revisiting you know there were a lot of models where the macro factor correlations assumed to be negative had certain positioning baked into them, which really struggled and we we saw that in performance of a lot of funds as well, and then on the other side was these factor correlations where again they were different from what we had seen in the back test. But since then, you know, fixed income is looking very attractive asset class after all of the sell-off that we've seen so far. But yeah, it was a volatile period, unique. In, in fact, I'd say I always, in all of the back tests and new research that we're doing, we stop our research and do in-sample research till 2020. And then everything after that is out of sample, um, which is a great test for the priors and assumptions we have in these strategies.
0: That's exactly where I wanted to go, which is from the lab and the theoretical construction of these factors and back tests into the implementation. Equities and fixed income are different in a lot of ways. Equities are more basic. You know, there's one equity per company versus lots of bonds tied up in capital structures with different indentures and sometimes subtleties that need to be really understood. And so, Give us an overview, the big picture of moving from the lab into the markets with regard to maybe some of the things that really need to be paid attention to on the trading side from an implementation standpoint, and then also just benchmarking. The benchmarking of fixed income is a real thing. You made the point that the size factor isn't as important because size is just different in equities versus fixed income and credit. So that's where I would love you to just... Talk to us a little bit more about implementation on systematic fixed income.
1: Yep, definitely. I'd say implementation is as important as our signal construction and priors and all of our models and optimizations. Implementation is just as important, if not more, because it's actually very easy to take fixed income data, clean it up, which in all fairness is its own thing, and then run a back test and get a great IR. But going from that to, to actually creating a portfolio and trading that portfolio is key for understanding if these factors do really work, what are they loading on? Is it just mispricings from a vendor perspective uh, since these are OTC instruments? So there are a couple of aspects here which make implementation hard. The first one's around just the fact that, you know, as I mentioned the OTC, so liquidity is not as clean So transaction costs, liquidity, both of them play a big role in deciding if something would be implementable or not. So working with the trading desk in understanding what trades at what levels and what sizes, and then making sure that's part of your lab process, if you may. And we've created a feedback loop there really helps inform even when you do attribution and try to understand where these factors work, where they don't. So the way we think about it is... Right now, if you look at the investment grade benchmark, it's about six thousand bonds. Each one of them, as you alluded to, has different characteristics. You know, they can have different coupons, different seniority levels, could have different liquidity depending on the age of the bond, amount outstanding, which again drives liquidity. And so, first aspect where it makes a difference is when you create these factors, are you accounting for all of those characteristics? The second place where it makes a difference is when you build your portfolios, are you able to trade the bonds that your model is suggesting? So we spend a lot of time understanding implementation and creating back tests and creating portfolios that are actually implementable, whether excluding trades and outliers that bonds and outliers that might look attractive from a factor level, but you can't really trade them. And then the second place where we use this insight is risk modeling. It's very hard to isolate idiosyncratic risk within fixed income. So creating style factors that are neutral to macro factors, because they should be, we shouldn't be loading on macro factors if we are uh, trying to load on these style factors, is a lot harder in fixed income than uh, equities. And of course you know there's a lot of adjustments you can do to factor construction to portfolio construction but risk models that try to capture those different dimensions of risk are really useful here so we work with a lot of proprietary risk models to make sure that they are capturing all of this the other kind of models that we include in our factor construction and try to get the lab as close to implementability our transaction cost models. Because again, you can find a liquid subset of the bond universe where you feel comfortable in trading it and you could have a great IR and great performance, but when you actually go to implement it, you could just lose all of that return in transaction costs. So having a good sense of uh, what transaction costs look like across a universe is key here so we work with a lot we spend a lot of time on transaction cost models to get them as close to reality as possible having said all of this there is still like you know question marks to how much a model can capture that so when we go to implementability there is always a gap between what a portfolio looks like and what a model looks like but we try to close that gap as much as possible and then additionally we've spoken about a few volatile periods During these volatile periods, all these models go out of the window. So transaction cost models are just, uh, at that time, you you could put in a factor of 5, 10, 20. It's just anyone's guess. So being cognizant of that is key as well. And so during these periods, we try to be tactical. We try to be very in tune with the trading desk so we're not over-trading and transaction costs are not really a drag
0: the work that we do in markets is really about risk-adjusted return. Can we access a better return profile for a given set of risk or get the same return and just take less risk? And so in the world of fixed income systematic investing, how should we think about the improvement that's possible? Let's just say maybe from a sharp Ratio standpoint, give us some sense of an order of magnitude that the usage of factors is able to help us Improve the, the sharp ratio, let's just say from a pure indexed product?
1: Based on the work that we've done so far, if you look at the fixed income indices, the corporate ones, I mean, IG, high yield, generally the sharp ratio for the benchmark itself is around like 0. 0.4 to 0. 0.5. I'd say 0. 0.5 is the best. And then when you think about active returns over the benchmark, these factors on their own. Have a sharp ratio post T cost. And again, I stress post T cost quite a bit because pre T cost, sharp ratios for these factors look from two to three quite easily. But then once you do post T cost, I'd say maybe 0.7 to one. But a portfolio that combines all of these factors post T cost is going to look closer to one plus, so one to 1.3. And then you add an implementation layer and working with different regimes, so you would have a little bit of drag there. You can easily double the sharp from your benchmark by loading onto these factors.
0: There's some research out there on the index effect, the small overpricing of names that wind up being kind of forcibly bought just because they're part of the index. I think I've seen some stuff on let's say the HYG ETF high yield names that wind up in there. Is there a broad category of indexed based distortions that you observe in your world or those things that come up as part of the process?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. The HYG thing is pretty interesting with this view adoption of ETFs. We've seen ETFs really provide this degree of flexibility for investors that wasn't there before. And particularly in times of heightened volatility, they just become a great tool for accessing liquidity in these markets, but also for price discovery. So a lot of these bonds wouldn't trade on the same day, but the ETF trades and the bonds that end up in these ETFs are the more liquid bonds and they will get priced first. There is definitely this index effect and we've seen it in our portfolio attribution as well. So when we look at performance has been, what's driving performance, you could call it index effect, you could call it a liquidity effect, but that factor tends to react the first. So if the rest of the index has not been marked, it will tell you it's, depending on what your exposure to that factor is, that is going to drive bulk of your returns during these periods. It is definitely a category. A few other things that come to mind are just the fallen angel or the rising star phenomena. So with fallen angels, what we see is a lot of these fixed income investors have these tight mandates around ratings. So if a name gets downgraded from IG to high yield, they can't hold it anymore. And since they can't hold it anymore, there is this pressure on the price. When they get out of the index, there is a lot of pressure on the market where they get priced worse than their fundamentals or intrinsic value. And then what we see is that they outperform over the next year or two years. So there's definitely that effect. And that's a function, again, of these names getting out of an index and a lot of these investors being benchmarked to the index with very tight guidelines. The structural characteristic of that phenomena has been more recently tapped into by a lot of funds, you know, a lot of high-yield fallen angel funds are out there where you can just load onto these fallen angels name, where we know they're going to outperform since that price action in the beginning is very outsized relative to its intrinsic value. So yeah, these index, since fixed income is still dominated by big buy and hold investors, there are a lot of these structural Characteristics within the market that you can tap into for better risk-adjusted returns.
0: Now, the commentary on ratings agencies forcing behavior—I think that's really interesting. You had talked about the factors on an individual basis having some incremental sharp ratio, but then putting them together, enhancing that. And again, this gets back to the sort of interaction between the factors in the equity world. Some of these factors have become such a dominant force in terms of how money is managed that they introduce a new layer of volatility. Some people just call it factor vol. You'll hear things like the momentum factor was unwound. And so the presence of the investors in the market starts to become a thing. Again, back to the quant quake of 2007, that correlation that became very unique and very unwelcome between value and momentum was really the result of just so many folks having such overlapping exposures. So that's equities. And I don't think it's that protracted now that it was back then. Give us a sense in fixed income in in terms of the money tracking these types of strategies. And then as you sort of think about risk and respect the fact that we're part of the markets and our overlapping exposures might matter too, how does that figure into your calculus from from a risk management standpoint?
1: Yeah, that's that's actually a great topic. So we're nowhere there in fixed income because just the education around style factors in fixed income is not there yet. Like it's one of the things that has both from a academic and research perspective, and then just education of retail clients. These factors have not really been exploited as much. So there's not a lot of crowding. And even if you look at it from a perspective of amount of money managed, using factor strategies or systematic strategies, on the fixed income side, it's less than 5%. On the equity side, it's closer to 30%, you know, give or take. And so there is a huge gap in there. Having said that, over the last few years, the number of factor funds, the number of money that's managed using these quant strategies has doubled in fixed income, but it's still a very, very tiny amount. So what what I do expect is as education around these factors increases, as more targeted ways of accessing these premier exist, we will see more crowding in these spaces we will also see lower returns than what we've seen historically or that what we've seen in back tests. And that's just a function of this space maturing, better trading or electronic trading, more efficient trading. There are a few other things that are playing out from a technology point of view that might really speed up the process. So one's around electronic trading, but then the others around portfolio trading, where over the last three years, we've seen portfolio trading be about 8% of total trading that happens in corporate bonds. And essentially what portfolio trading is, instead of you buying or selling one bond, what you can do is you can have a list of bonds, both buys and sell, and you do it at zero T cost or close to zero T cost. And so that just is a huge game changer for factor funds that rebalance at a certain frequency and have trades that are pretty well diversified. And you go from a significant transaction cost, particularly in markets like high yield, to about flat to maybe slightly positive. And so we'll see a lot more of this happening. And that just brings efficiency into the market. That will speed up the adoption of these factors and fixed income. And then eventually you will see crowding here. You will see some of this getting priced in a lot sooner. That's just the evolution. So you can think it's like at least more than a decade behind equities or a little bit more, I'd say two decades behind
0: equities. Well, you've given us a really good roadmap there. That was really my next question, just in terms of the developments that are relevant to the growth of this product and asking you to look forward a little bit Maybe just on the technology side, specifically, you've talked about the trading technology becoming just more efficient, more powerful, reducing transactions costs. That's going to enable more capital to come in. You've talked about the education process that you're playing a role in. What about some of the other very cutting-edge developments in technology around large language models, AI? Are those on your radar screen? Do those fit into where you see the growth of systematic fixed income?
1: I'd say yes, but just taking a step back, the biggest impact will come from trading because these funds or these factors right now don't suffer an alpha decay problem. They suffer an implementation problem. So I think the biggest bang for the buck that will really push the space is trading. And as I mentioned, like electronic trading has increased significantly in the last few years. Right now, it's about 40 to 45% in investment rate, 30% in high yield. Portfolio trading is close to 8%. A lot of the factor funds are using portfolio trading. And then, of course, the ETFs, which help you hedge and also target specific parts of the fixed income market that uh, I truly think in the next two to three years, this space is going to look very different. And within fixed income, of course, across that spectrum, some assets are more behind than others. So me Muni's is only ten percent electronic, and that perhaps is a decade away from getting to close to fifty to sixty percent electronic trading. But in the next two to three years, that should have the more biggest impact. Now, coming back to other cutting-edge things that at least that we are doing, we are looking at large language models. We are looking at AI implementations. I think there are two big applications here. Still a little bit, we're not there yet, but from the context of fixed income, the two challenges that we see, particularly from a systematic fixed point of view, the first one is around coverage. So when we get data... When we get some sort of an insight, let's say even fundamentals, if the high yields index only has eighty percent public names, we will not have fundamentals for the rest of the twenty percent of the index, which is a big drawdown, particularly in a systematic process. So, the modeling of that part of the index or part of the universe where we don't have coverage because fixed income has non-public names, or there is a data that is very suited for a particular part of a sector, combining that, that's a great application in our perspective where we can take AI or large language models to help extrapolate a lot of these data sets, increase our breadth, because we really struggle with breadth in fixed income. There are only a half, well, it's not a handful, but when you compare it to equity, there are a handful of issuers. So increasing breadth really helps leverage and extend these factors across the universe. And then the other thing which will have direct implications, a lot of the data around fixed income issuers is still not electronic. You have these prospectus that get uploaded. You need to be able to kind of parse through them, pull out themes. And Munis comes to mind because Munis is such a beast with thousands of issuers and then very unique sectors where you need a lot of people to painstakingly go through the details of issuers, go through prospectuses, and pull out themes. So having these models pick out insights more systematically is going to be a huge edge. It will also make markets like Munis a lot more efficient than what they are right now. So those two big applications is where I see the most impact from Gen AI and um, large language
0: models. Well, Karishma, I'd like to close out this conversation, which I very much enjoyed, I learned a lot, by asking you to reflect a little bit on your own career and specifically on some of the initiatives around Wall Street, both buy-side and sell-side, that are focused on trying to expand opportunities for women in the area of finance. Your own background just seems like you found something you loved, you're good at it, and you charged through. (laughs) Some folks don't have such a such a direct and focused path, but just talk to us a little bit about what you see on, again, buy-side and sell-side, the initiatives that are focused on trying to help develop careers in finance for females, what's working, what needs to be maybe re-examined. What are the things that you're excited about in this area?
1: So, yeah, I'd say, yeah, as I look back on my career and I'm having this conversation with you... I go back to when I started on the fixed floor and I was one of the very few women there. But then even going back, like in my master's program, there were only three female students as in a class of 70. And there was something similar in bachelor's, a little bit higher. But to your point, I tried not to focus on it too much. And I was fortunate enough. I had mentors throughout my career that helped me navigate challenges that I may have come across Due to the fact, the fact that the few females in finance, but as I've mentored women in finance and especially young women that join, there are a couple of themes that stand out. And so, as I look back, I'm going to try to collect my thoughts. But starting off with how the fixed income floor looked 15 years ago, it's drastically different than what it is today, right? Uh, whether it is buy side or sell side, that unnecessary level of whether it was aggression or perhaps not healthy environment that you would you would or intimidating environment that you were around that has really come down over the years. So when I look at both buy side and sell side, I think people are a lot more rational now. There is little of unnecessary stress vibe. It's about the work. It's very meritocratic from what I see. But at the end of the day, finance is full of big personalities, whether it's like fundamental or systematic or quant, there are a lot of people with big personalities and that can be intimidating. So as I look back, I think the two things that if I could even go back and advise myself, you know, would be around listening and taking risks. So I feel like early in your career, you might feel intimidated around, uh, as I said, big personalities or like, Asset different asset classes, in my case, complicated models, but it could be something else. It's so important to go beyond that and be able to take risks because I would say not only as being female, but also like in the quant space, a lot of the quants are more on the shy side or perhaps want to square all of the boxes before they speak. But trying to overcome that and taking risks early in your career is just so important and you know if i could do that if i could go back and change one thing i would do that too i would try to expose myself to a lot more things a lot earlier i did end up doing that like four or five years into my career but i wish i could have done that a lot sooner and then the other bit is understanding listening and standing up for yourself And so when you feel you're not in, whether it's like, you know, not getting exposed to the opportunities that you want or not getting exposed to, especially early in your career, I'd say the most important thing is, are you learning every single day? So you should make the most use of it. And if you feel being said one of a group of 10, a little bit different is a disadvantage, making sure you kind of overcome that, that'd be great, but Having said all of this, looking back over the last 15 years, I think the street has changed a lot. A lot of these initiatives, particularly around DEI, internal mobility, have made an impact, but I feel like women or just quants in general have a lot more opportunity and it feels a lot more meritocratic than perhaps like you know two decades before.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. It's an optimistic take and It's really nice to hear your own personal experience through your career, which has been really great to learn about. And as I said, this this conversation has been really excellent. I've learned a lot, and I know our listeners are going to enjoy learning about this as well. So, Karishma, thank you so much for, for being a guest today. Yeah,
1: definitely. It was a pleasure being on the podcast. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time.